Now we'll commence again. This is WSQF 94.5. It's 7 o'clock. We have Adam Levinson for the Statues and Stories show. And we're going to talk about the Insurrection Act of 1807. Take it away, Adam Levinson. So many, as you know, on this show, we look back in time. We look at American history because the history can inform how we understand the politics today. So we don't focus today on the politics. You do that on your other hours. But for this hour, we focus on the history. So it is a topical subject because this subject, if you're looking in the newspapers, listen to the radio, this this act has been raised across the aisle by both parties, and it's, it's an interesting subject to delve into the details. So the Insurrection Act was adopted in 1807, but we're not going to start with the Insurrection Act. We're going to start before the Insurrection Act with the Militia Acts of 1792. And on prior shows, we actually talked about the Militia Acts of 1792. So this is the moment at the beginning of the show where we sort of tee up what we're going to talk about. So we're going to talk about the Insurrection Act of 1807, and the president at the time was uh, Thomas Jefferson, and there's some irony here when we talk about Jefferson. And from there, we're going to move on to the instances where the act has been used across American history, and there are approximately 20 examples of where the Insurrection Act has been used because the president declared there to be an insurrection or thought there was something that justified using the act. We're also going to talk about a Latin word, and I'm horrible with Well, wait, before we talk about anything else, do you yeah. or do you not feel like there was an insurrection in the last four or five days? interesting question, and I try to keep out too much of my politics from the conversation. That ain't our political. Country, that's just a question. Yes. That's yes. just our a definition country, of insurrection. Yes. Our, our country gives us the First Amendment right to peacefully protest, so I am all in favor of peaceful protest, and I hope everyone who's protesting is peaceful. Okay, uh, so the, the insurrection part of it is just the looting, the theft, and the death of cops and people. Is that an insurrection or not? That sounds like battlefield uh, lexicon. The statute does not have a definition of insurrection. Oh, my God. Perfect answer. Reasonable people can disagree on what's an insurrection, but uh, I'm, I'm going to focus on where the statute comes from and the history behind it, and we'll let the viewers make their own decision uh, whether or not there's been an insurrection. And by the way, as it turns out, and the date, if you want to look in the newspapers the last couple of days, and the last couple of days, and again, I'm going to focus on the history because I like to leave my personal politics out of the conversation. But on June 1st, President Trump, now he didn't threaten, but he hinted that if the governors didn't control the protests, then he would call in the military. So basically what he was doing was he's pointing to, he didn't use the name Insurrection Act, but if he were to deploy the active military, not the reserve, but the active military, that would require the use of the Insurrection Act. And as it turns out, he did not use the Insurrection Act. And in fact, they're now removing troops from Washington, D.C. So um, he did not invoke the act. So that's a way of answering your question that, uh, you know, at least the president did not treat it as an insurrection. And again, peaceful protest is something that makes our country great. So, you know, this is so that was a good that was a good bluff is basically what you're saying. So, no, it wasn't an insurrection. Right. And I'm, I'm going to use that as a, the proof was that the president did not deploy active military, which the Insurrection Act allows in the case of an insurrection. And we're going to get into the weeds on how the statute evolved over time, how it's been used over time. And I'm, I'm now going to segue just to cover our background uh, so people know what the topics are going to be. Uh, you know, when you watch the old Western movies, and this is when I say 
you know, the, the Latin terminology. There's an act that was adopted in the 1870s, because when we talk about the Insurrection Act, we also have to talk about the Posse Comitatus. And this is where I don't like to use Latin, but the Posse Comitatus Act, and this is from more recent, this is after the Civil War. So when I mention the Posse Comitatus Act, and, and Manny, I don't know that you've had a chance to look at it. Well, you're taking like a giant leap from 1807 to 1850-something, 1860-something. 1871 time. 70-something. Woo-hoo! Yeah. So, so when we talk about the Posse Comitatus Act, and the reason I'm mentioning this is because the, the two acts sort of go together. So that's why I want people to know that this is all on the agenda. It's on the plate for today. And uh, you know, for, for people who um, aren't familiar with 1877, actually, uh, 1877 is the Posse Comitatus Act. And you know, people who aren't familiar with the Latin or aren't familiar with that expression, they've actually heard it if they've watched old Western movies where the sheriff rounds up. And what's the word I'm looking for? It starts with a P. When, you know, when uh, there's a, a criminal and, uh, you know, the sheriff uh, needs help. And in, Sp- in Spanish, it's a really vulgar word that I can't use on the radio. Well, the, the posse, right? So this this notion of, and that's where the Latin comes from, that you're... you're uh, that word stays till this day. Deputizing, you know, the, the other members in the community, that's that, that's the, the, the language of the posse, the Posse Comitatus Act, uh, which actually restricts the use of military force. So we're going to talk about these two acts tonight, and uh, I, I know towards the end we can... Uh, dovetail with some other con- concepts. Um, so th- that's what we're going to cover. So let- let's begin with the, in-, in order to do the Insurrection Act, you have to understand the Militia Act. And in order to understand the Mich- Militia Act, I think it makes sense to look at the Constitution. So what does the Constitution say? And everybody knows that the Constitution, Article 1, is the legislative power. Article 2 is executive power, which is the president. Article 3 is the Supreme Court. So those are the three important articles when you divide up power in the Supreme Court, I'm sorry, in the, in the Constitution, and the preamble is how the Constitution starts. So Article 1 is where you have congressional power. So what does Article 1, Section 8 say? And Article 1, Section 8 is the probably the most important in terms of power provision in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 lists um, more than a dozen powers that Congress has, the power to tax, the power to spend, the power to do a mint, etc. So Article 1, Section 8 has in Clause 15 what I'm going to call the Militia Clause in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15. I'm going to read it to you because it's very important to this conversation. So what does the Militia Clause say, or the Calling Forth Clause? And it says as follows, that Congress has the power to, right, and you skip down because it lists all these different powers. So Congress has the power to provide for calling forth militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. So let's digest what we just read. So the Constitution. Hey, but that was a hint. You just said repel invasions. That looks like what I saw on TV. Yeah. Okay, right. And you know, you can make your own judgment on, on what. Only these had signs, not tanks. <laughs> so, and, and people who are listening, and remember, people can listen to us live at seven. They can go to the the website of WSQF and listen to podcasts, or they can go to the website statutesandstories.com where you can read the blog that I posted, and we go into great detail on the blog, and many of the acts and the primary sources that we talk about tonight, people can actually read them for yourselves, because there are all kinds of links. So, if you look at the Constitution, and anyone can use their phone to pull up the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8 is the Militia Clause, or the Calling Forth Clause, and what did it just say? That Congress, doesn't say anybody else, doesn't say President, doesn't say anyone else, Congress has the power to call forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrection, and repel invasions. And those words are not defined. So, 1792, Congress finally got around, and to give everybody more background, the first Congress met in 1789, when 
Washington is the president. And they did not address, because it was a touchy subject, because the anti-federalists were very afraid of too much federal power, whereas the federalists were willing to you know, consolidate more power in the new federal government. Washington was a federalist, Hamilton, etc. So for the first three years, they don't get into what these provisions mean, and they really didn't do much when it came to the military. But finally, in 1792, Congress passes, and we talked about this on another night, two militia acts. One act in 1792 was the Calling Forth Act. The other act was the Uniform Militia Act. And the Calling Forth Act set forth under what circumstances can the president call forth the militia? Because remember— Oh, that's a very good one. No, no, I don't want to interrupt you, but I'm anxious to know the details of that. Yep, and and go back to the website and look at, because we have a blog on the Militia Acts of 1792. So remember, 1789 is the first Congress. They wait for three years until 1792, and they do these two Militia Acts. One is the Calling Forth Act, one is the Uniform Militia Act. And the Calling Forth Act really quotes from Article 1, Section 8, which is where Congress has the power to call forth the militia to execute the laws, suppress insurrections, or kill invasions, and Congress delegates that power to the president. Now, what was what was the motivating factor for delegating that power to the president? Excellent. So remember, and that's an excellent question. So Congress has the power to call for it. Doesn't say the president can call for the militia. I can see where the controversy would arise today if its origins were like that. That I'm hoping our audience is hearing it for the first time because that makes this show very important. Because I'm hearing it for the first time. I always assumed it was the commander in chief's sole authority, and now you're telling me it was not. But in terms of Article 1, Section 8, which is the provision of calling forth the militia, right, to suppress insurrections, repel invasions, and execute the laws, it is Congress who has that authority. So to your point, what happens in 1792? They adopt these two militia acts, which delegate, give from Congress, give to the president the ability to call forth the militia. And the concern is, you know, if the Washington, D.C., and back then the capital was New York, and then the capital moved to Philadelphia. But if the capital is getting attacked and Congress can't act, you know, maybe there's a virus that people can't get together and can't vote. So if, if you need the Congress to vote to the, let the, the, the military be called forth or the militia to be called forth, then the enemy can come in and do what the enemy needs to do. So Congress delegated this power, which was a big step in 1792. So your question was, what motivated them after three years to finally grapple with and try to answer? And we haven't yet talked about the conditions they put on yet, but the, what motivated them? And the answer is, and I'm going to throw out some names that we talked about another night, there was a battle called the Battle of Wabash River. It was also called St. Clair's Defeat, or it was called the Battle of a Thousand Slain in 1791. So 1791, there is a military defeat where the U.S. Army and approximately half of the army were either killed or injured in this battle, which took place in the Northwest Indian Wars in 1791. So the Indians took it to him. The Indians took it to him, and the chief was Chief Little Turtle, and Chief Little Turtle was able to, and I don't know the tactics and the specifics of the battle, but basically the Americans walked into a big ambush. Uh, They weren't being led very well by the general who was St. Clair, and we've talked about St. Clair before because he was the president during the Articles of Confederation, and remember everybody, during the Articles of Confederation period before the Constitution. So before 1789, the presiding officer of Congress was the president. So every year you had a 
different president or the president of Congress, and St. Clair happened to have been one of the presidents of Congress during the Articles period, which lasted from the Revolution until 1789 when the new Constitution took effect. So St. Clair... Was he killed killed in this massacre or no? Say that again? Was he killed in this ambush? No. In in fact, he had, I think, been suffering from, and I don't want to give specifics, but I think he had a back problem or he was having arthritis, so he wasn't even riding on a horse. I think they were carrying him around. Oh, my God. So, yeah, the Indians caught a wind of that for sure. Right. So this is not a guy who was a military genius. He was more of a politician who was in charge, who was made into a general, and uh, he led the troops into uh, this (coughs) battle in the Northwest Indian War, and the Indians totally routed the Americans. So what happens, and this is all background, that was 1791, Congress realizes that the military is under-equipped. You can't just rely on the full-time military. You need the militia. And the anti-federalists, and here I'm pointing to Madison and Jefferson, they were big supporters of the militia. They didn't like standing armies because they thought the standing armies were expensive and the standing armies were a threat to democracy. So they were anti-big military. They were pro-strong militias. They wanted you know, the regular citizen militias to be the ones that could be called up when necessary if, if, if a foreign country of Spain or France or England or if there were hostilities on the frontiers with Native Americans. So long story short, because of that big defeat in the 1791 battle of the Wabash River in the Northwest Territory at the time, the Congress got their act together and Washington sort of moved it along and said, listen, we need to do something. We need to finally give me the authority to call forth the militia, do a law. So they did those two laws towards the end of the session. So that was uh, 1792 when you get the Calling Forth Act and the Uniform Militia Act. So now, let's connect those militia acts to 1807, because that's what I promised everyone we talk about. And when you listen to the news, everyone's talking about the Insurrection Act of 1807. So, and we're going to go back and forth, but the 1807 Insurrection Act, and I heard the Attorney General in an interview refer to it as the Anti-Insurrection Act. And, you know, most people I've seen refer to it, and I refer to it as the Insurrection Act of 1807. But here I'm going to connect the dots. The Insurrection Act of 1807 is an amendment to the 1792 Act, and those were the two militia acts of 1792. So let's now move ahead to Jefferson. So Washington's the first president. We adopt the 1792 Militia Acts, and there are various provisions that I'll talk about during the night, but it expired on its own. It sunset after approximately two years. So they reenacted it in 1795. So the 1792 Act became the Militia Act of 1795, and Congress said, you know what, we're not going to have to do this every year. We're going to make it automatic. So the 1795 So, there, uh, so was there an event in 1807 that, that, that created this, you know, longstanding act, or uh, why didn't the 1807 Act sunset if the other two had? questions which are right on the money. So, and it, it, by the way, this is part of the, one of the most interesting parts of the story. So the 1792 Act sunsets, they adopt the 1795 Act, which says it's now permanent. So why did they make changes in 1807? So this now gets into a story about Aaron Burr. So Aaron Burr was the vice president under Jefferson in the first term. In fact, we talked about last week, if I'm remembering, or two weeks ago, we talked about the election of 1800, where Jefferson and Burr, uh, you know, Burr is running for the first time as an official vice presidential candidate, but because the Electoral College back then was messed up, and if there was a tie, which there was, they had to vote on who would be president, who would be vice president at the Electoral College level that went over to the House. So long story short, Burr uh, runs against his own presidential candidate and winds up narrowly, I think, 
think it was 37 or so ballots they have to take over a week. And finally, Burr becomes vice president and Jefferson becomes president. And that leads to... And we're all the much better because of it. Because I have a feeling that Burr was a total bum. Burr has all kinds of issues, which you're going to see tonight. So... What's the result? The result is that because Jefferson realizes that this guy was supposed to be my running mate, and now he's challenging me in Congress when the election goes over to the House. So that led to a poisoned relationship between Jefferson and Burr. And when Jefferson runs for a second term, he drops Burr, and you can use whatever expression you want, but uh, he wants to have nothing to do with Burr. So Burr is sort of out on his own. And then in 1803, Hamilton and Burr have their duel, and Burr winds up killing Hamilton in the duel. And we can talk about that if we need to talk, talk about more, more information. So Burr, you know, was dropped as the vice president for the 1804 election, and he's also, you know, he's committed a murder, although it was a duel of Hamilton. So he's not on the ballot in 1804. So what does he do? And the quick answer is Burr realizes that uh, the Western Territory uh, presents opportunities for land grabbing and for uh, taking advantage of the Native Americans. It was an issue. But uh, he realizes that, uh, you know, some of this territory is not really governed well. There aren't that many people here. And he winds up getting into a conspiracy. And there are different people that have different interpretations of what he was trying to do. But I'm going to use Jefferson's understanding of what Burr was trying to do. And the idea was that Burr was probably machinating and conspiring in the area of, um, back then it was Mexico and Spanish-controlled areas west of Florida and in the Louisiana area. So long story short, Burr apparently was involved with a conspiracy that he and his troops and the folks that he was assembling, almost a posse comitatus of his own, were trying to take over that territory. And the concern was that he was trying to create his own country, that Burr would be the king or the president of his Western territory that he's conspiring to take away from Mexico, Spain, and the United States. And these areas haven't been thoroughly mapped out, and you know, some of these areas is not clear. And, and was, there, was there plenty evidence of that? Because it was just Jefferson's uh, angle, or did it fall on deaf ears because it was just maybe just wanted to create a state, not a country? So Burr gets arrested. They capture him in Alabama. And today it's Alabama. Back then it wasn't a state yet. It was the territory. So they capture him. They bring him to Virginia, and they put him on trial. And he goes on trial in Virginia in 1806. Uh-oh, now this is building up to the insurrection. building up. Right, and you're asking the question, why did they amend the act in 1807? So Burr is involved with this conspiracy. Jefferson and others and the prosecutors are all convinced that he's trying to confiscate land from Spain and America. He's, at, he's committing treason is what they try to accuse him of, and they put him on trial in 1806. It's a month-long trial. And before I go into the trial, because I want to get back to the act, the question that – and Jefferson is a by-the-book guy. Jefferson is a strict constructionist, meaning Jefferson, if it's not clear in the Constitution, if he doesn't have the power, he doesn't want to push boundaries because he believes in small government, and Jefferson believes – in states' rights. He considered himself a Virginian more than he considered himself an American. In his mind, he's a Virginian first, right? So, you know, he was a states' rights guy. And it's interesting how the parties, there are similarities and differences. So Jefferson asked his Secretary of State, and his Secretary of State was our good friend Madison. So he asked the Secretary of State Madison about whether or not he can use, this is before they arrest Burr, he asked the question, this is Jefferson asking Madison, the Secretary of State, can he use the militia to go after and arrest and, and you know, go after, when I say uh, arrest and suppress this insurrection, if you will, 
that Burr is planning and working on in this territory, which isn't part of the country. It's not a state yet. In the area, today it's Alabama, Louisiana area. So this is what Madison does. Madison and I give the link so people can read the actual letter. Madison writes back to his president, and the president is Jefferson, and Madison answers as follows, because Jefferson is asking whether or not he can use the militia to go after Burr. So this is the answer from Madison. October 1806, Madison gives a legal opinion of the Secretary of State, which says as follows. And I'm skipping, giving you just the, the guts of it. This is Madison, 1806. It does not appear that regular troops can be employed under any legal provision against insurrections, but only against expeditions having foreign countries as the object. So what does that mean? Madison is basically saying, because Burr is not attacking us, it's not a foreign country attacking us. I don't think, me, Madison, that you, Jefferson, have the authority to use the militia to use regular troops. And we can talk about what's the difference between regular troops and militia, but Madison basically tells him, no, you can't use the troops to go after Burr. Jefferson is not happy because he doesn't like that answer. But if that's the interpretation of Madison, and that's how Madison was reading the Militia Act and the Constitution, Jefferson realizes, well, let's fix it. So this leads to the reason why they amend the Militia Acts and adopt the Insurrection Act of 1807. So because we've talked about Burr, your obvious question and follow-up, so I won't leave you hanging, is what happens when Burr goes on trial? And listen to, I tell you, who's in this case. So Burr, who was a former vice president just a few years earlier, is on trial for conspiracy, for treason, and for whatever else. And um, he was arrested in Alabama, as I said, brought to Virginia for trial. And the presiding judge, and I think there were two, but the presiding judge in the case happens to be another Virginian, Chief Justice John Marshall. So think about this. For oh, my God. Former vice president is on trial, and John Marshall is the judge in the case. Or the, he's not serving as a chief justice. He's serving as a just a judge, trial judge in the case. So who are the attorneys representing Burr? And I'm going to mention these names that many of the listeners will have heard before. They may not know exactly who it is, but they're going to remember some of these names. Edmund Randolph. So who is Edmund Randolph? And this is the who's who of the Virginia Bar. Edmund Randolph was our second attorney general. I'll take it back. He was our first attorney general, Edmund Randolph. And uh, he is a very prominent Virginian, and he is a signer of the – he didn't sign the Constitution, but he was at the Constitutional Convention. And he used to be Washington's lawyer at various times in American history. So Washington's lawyer – Washington's dead now, by the way, in 1806. So Washington's personal lawyer, who was our first attorney general, is representing Burr on the defense, Charles Lee. Charles Lee was our third attorney general. So you've got attorney general number one and attorney general number three of the United States are both representing Burr. And Charles Lee is related to guess who, right, the, the, the name Lee. So he's related to the, the Lee dynasty, which is William Henry Lee, that light horse Lee, uh, who was the, the very famous general who was good with the, the dragoons and the, the horse troops uh, going after the British. And uh, so this is the brother. Charles Lee is the brother of William Henry Lee, who is the father of Robert E. Lee. So this is the Lee family, right? And the Lee family marries the Custis family, and that, uh, that's Martha Washington, the Custis family. So this is a very highly connected Lee family. So Charles Lee, who is the third attorney general, along with Edmund Randolph, the first attorney general, are representing, are representing uh, Burr, along with Luther Martin. Luther Martin is from Maryland, and he's a signer. Actually, he didn't sign it either, but he was at the Constitutional Convention and then left because he wanted a Bill of Rights. So you've got founding fathers, and when I say founding fathers, you know, this is the generation of, of the folks who fought the Revolution and uh, you know, who were there to 
you know, to build the country and to create the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. And this, and this is the first. This is basically the first moment of truth. This is a huge trial with Burr on trial before Justice an ex vice president. On top of that. So what do you think happens to Burr? Does he get convicted, or does he get? Do you want to answer, or should I just tell you? I'm going to just answer. He doesn't get convicted. He does not get with, with that legal team, and the the law was conflicting. And when the evidence is conflicting, you know, then you give in our system, you give the benefit of the doubt, and you're not convicted. So Burr realizes that he doesn't have friends in our country. He winds up going to France, and uh, he lives in France for a while. He has families in France, and he eventually comes back and becomes a divorce lawyer. And Burr no longer has a successful divorce attorney, and he no longer is involved in politics. But he is acquitted in this big trial in 1806, August of 1806. But Jefferson wants to fix the act because he's concerned if this should happen again, I need a more powerful provision that allows me to deploy the militia using appropriate safeguards. So 1807, this is the backstory about how the Insurrection Act of 1807 was adopted, building on and amending the Militia Act of 1792 and 1795. So what changes did they make? But before I tell you the changes they make, I wanted to tell you some of the protections. So one protection that was in the Calling Forth Act, which is referred to as the Militia Acts of 92, 1792, was that the president and there were different things that would justify the use of force. And if you go back to Article One, Section 8, it has three little sub-provisions, one of which was suppressing insurrections and repelling invasions, right? Okay. So you can call forth the militia to suppress insurrections or repel invasions. So if you're repelling an invasion, if a foreign country is attacking you, you don't need anybody's permission, right? You don't need to go to your governors or to Congress. If you're being attacked by the Spanish or the French or the British and they're firing on your capital, you can fight back. But what about an insurrection? Because an insurrection is something which isn't defined. So what the 1792 Act said is that if there is a circumstance, and I'm, I'm simplifying, where you can't use the regular judicial process. In other words, you can't use the marshals and you can't use the police. You can't get the job done because there are too many people that are, we could use the example of Shays Rebellion, or we could use the example of the Whiskey Rebellion, where Washington marched in 1794 with Hamilton and about 12,000 troops, because during the Whiskey Rebellion, you know, the, 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 the protesters were, were tarring and feathering the tax collectors, and they were burning down and attacking courthouses, going after the guns that were stored in the, the arsenals. So in the Whiskey Rebellion and in Shays Rebellion, where this was in Massachusetts, where you know there's, there's violence or there are armed, I won't call them protesters, but uh, you know when you have an insurrection, if that's how you want to look at the Shays Rebellion and you want to look at the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, so what, what Congress did in the Militia Act of 1792 is they said that where you can't simply use the regular arm, army, or it's not army, but the regular tools of the government, which are not military, the civilian portions, the police portions of the, of the government, then as long as a federal judge makes a determination that there is an insurrection, then the president can call up the militia. So that's what Washington did in 1794. So remember, the Militia Act was 1792. Less than two years after Congress adopts the Militia Act, Congress has to use it in the – or Washington uses it because of the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794, where he calls up the Virginia and I think two other states. He calls up approximately 12,000 soldiers. And then this is the only time that it's happened in American history. Washington leads those militias to go to – put down, and this is in western Pennsylvania, the uh, the Shays Rebellion. I'm sorry, it's the Whiskey Rebellion, because I confuse it too, though. the Whiskey Rebellion, 1794. And with that massive display of force, with the president leading the cavalry, if you will, and Hamilton is there right beside him, and also one of the Lees, and I think it was a light horse 
Henry Lee, so Charles Lee's brother. Charles Lee is one of the attorneys defending Burr, but William Henry Lee, who later gives the the, uh, the eulogy for Washington. Remember, Washington, when he dies, was referred to as, and I'm going to butcher this, you know, first uh, in, in the hearts of our nation. It's a lot longer eulogy, but uh, you know, as the first among equals, the the father of our country. That that eulogy was by William Henry Lee. And William Henry Lee is also commanding the troops, these 12,000 troops that march on Western Pennsylvania. And when the rebellion sees all these troops coming, which outnumbers the, uh, you know, there's no, no question that, that there's no chance that the rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, can, can defeat the American army here and all these militia, uh, they, they quickly uh, dissipate. And Washington arrests a few people, and uh, they hold them, and then he pardons them. Uh, I think he pardons all of them, and that's the end of the Whiskey Rebellion. So a massive show of force with militia from three states quickly puts down in 1794. But the point I'm trying to make is that under the 1792 Act, the president could not use the militia against an insurrection unless a judge made a determination that it was an insurrection that could not be addressed with the U.S. Marshals and with, back then they didn't really have too much in the way of police, but by the, with the regular forces that the government has separate from the military. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that, was a, that was a protection built into the 1792 Act. But... Over time, they got rid of that particular provision that the judge had to make a determination. Why, why would they do that? It was just complicated? I mean, why, why so leave I, it to a judge? I mean, that's, you know, in a critical moment, that could be devastating for a country. Right. So remember, there are different clauses. One provision deals with an insurrection. One deals with an invasion. And the 1807 Act got rid of that phrase, and I'll talk about what, what it changed, but it cut out and removed the, the requirement of a invasion. So now it's any insurrection. You no longer have to have an invasion as a requirement. So Jefferson took out the word invasion. He also added into the 1807 Act land or naval forces. So this way you can use both the military, and he was all about his small gunboats, you know, his, I forgot the terminology for it, but his, his, his navy. And Jefferson built a navy because he thought rather than having the army in forts, he thought it's safer to have your soldiers in boats because they can do less damage, you know, they're less likely to go out and run amok if you keep them on boats. And I'm, I'm simplifying. So long story short, the 1807 Act made some changes, one of which was took away the requirement of, a, I'm sorry, of an invasion, uh, said that the government and the, the, so the, the president can call up and deploy the military, and meaning the army and the navy, and a requirement was still kept. One of the earlier requirements, which I haven't mentioned yet, we talked about how the judge or the a justice of the Supreme Court had to say that, yes, this is an insurrection. Another requirement was that the president had to make a declaration. The president had to say, under the 1792 Act, which is still in the law today, by the way, that before he brings in troops against the civilians, he has to say, with an official declaration, we're coming. This is your chance to go home and to disperse. The president, under the 1792 Act, and in all versions since then, have kept the requirement. And at the end of the hour, give me a couple minutes, and I'm going to give everyone the citations so you can see what the current version of the law is today, because it's referred to as the Insurrection Act from 1807, but it's been amended a couple of times, including during the Civil War by one of my favorite presidents, by Lincoln. Lincoln expanded it to give even more power, right? So um, the point is that the 1792 version and the current version still have a requirement that before the president, in the case of an insurrection, sends military, he has to make a declaration. He has to say, we're coming and skedaddle because we're coming in. So that is still part of the law. And this is why Congress was trying to say that, you know, we're suspicious and we are worried about too much federal power because we don't 
trust government, right? These were the founders who fought the British. But they put in these checks and limitations in the 1792 Calling Forth Act or the Militia Act, those are both the same name for the Act, 1792. Uh, they kept it 1795, and now 1807 is our main part of our story. So what does the 1807 Act do? And I encourage people, go to the website, statutesandstories.com. It is a full paragraph. Normally, when we look at laws, especially today, a law can be pages and pages. But the 1807 Act, which was adopted, as we said, by Jefferson and his Congress, because he's trying to prevent another Burr situation, and because he didn't like the answer that he got from Madison. Not that he disagreed, but he wanted to change the law. If we can't do it, let's change the law. So let me read you from the 1807 Act, which I said is only a, a paragraph. And really, it's one long run-on sentence making a paragraph. So this is the Insurrection Act of 1807, which Bob Barr calls the Anti-Insurrection Act of 1807. I'm going to read it to you. This is an act authorizing the employment of the land and naval forces of the United States in cases of insurrection. So that's the title of the act. It doesn't say Insurrection Act. It says this long title, an act authorizing the employment of the land and naval forces of the United States in cases of insurrections. And I'll point out that this was adopted by the Ninth Congress in the second session of the Ninth Congress. And I happen to have the book, which contains the actual act. So I have a picture from a book of the, of the act I'm reading, and it was chapter, Roman numerals, chapter LXX1V, which is 50, 60, 70, 84. So it's chapter 84, which was the 84th act passed in the second session of the Ninth Congress. So I read you the title. Now let me read you the long run-on sentence, which is a big paragraph. So what does it say? It says as follows. Be it enacted by the Senate and the House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled. That's just the introduction. Here we go. That, in all cases of insurrection or obstruction to the laws, either of the United States or any individual state or territory. Now think about this for a second. Why, does they, why do they add in the word territory? Because Burr was running amok in the territory. So this gives Jefferson the authority in any of the Western territories to send in the militia if there is an insurrection, because it's not just in a state, it would be in a territory. So again, I'm repeating that in all cases of insurrection or obstruction to the laws, either of the United States or any individual state or territory, where it is lawful for the President of the United States to call forth the militia. So what is that doing? That's referring back to the Militia Act, as it says, where it is lawful for the President of the United States to call forth the militia for purposes of suppressing such insurrection, or, and this is all one sentence, or of causing the laws to be duly executed, it shall be lawful, that's the key, it shall be lawful for him, the President, to employ for such purposes such part of the land or naval force of the United States as shall, as shall be judged necessary, having first observed all the prerequisites of the law in that respect. So when it says you have to observe the prerequisites of the law, that's referring back again to the Militia Act of 1792-1795 that you have to make the declaration that we're coming in. And the judge, under certain circumstances, if it's not an invasion but if it's an insurrection, the judge has to say that this is a certain situation that warrants using the military. So this is the 1807 Act, which since 1807 has been amended a handful of times. So uh, do you have any questions about the 1807 Act before we move on? Okay, so we talked about the 1807 Act, and I now want to talk about how the, the Act necessarily, as I said, exists in conjunction with the earlier Militia Acts. 
and talk about proclamations. The president, before he sends in the troops, has to make a proclamation to command such insurgents to disperse and retire peaceably to their respective abodes within a limited time. doesn't say how much time, but presumably you can't just say you should disperse and then a minute later send in the troops. You have to give them an opportunity to disperse with this declaration from the president. And I'm going to answer my own question here. Why would Congress have put in that requirement that the president has to make a declaration and the language is a proclamation commanding the insurgents to disperse? And the answer is that way Congress can know if the president's making this determination and a proclamation, Congress can say, wait a second, we disagree with the president. So that public announcement is a process of, you know, providing notification, not just to those who are doing the insurrection, but to the other officials in Congress and in the government that something serious is happening here. So Congress can exercise a push in that push and pull of the way the system works. So that's the first observation. Another observation is that the Militia Acts, including the 1807 Act, make a distinction between combinations, this is the language, which are too powerful to be suppressed by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings versus insurrections and foreign invasions, where the federal government cannot do it on its own. It needs the military and it needs state militias to help. So that's uh, some of the details of the 1792, 1795, and 1807 Act. And let's now spend a little bit of time talking about the times where the, the Militia Act or the Anti-Insurrection Act has been used. And there are approximately 20, instance, 20 examples that we can talk about tonight. So let's go through some examples. The first instance where it was used was actually by Jefferson in 1808. So the law was amended in 1807. Jefferson winds up using it in 1808. And in 1808, we had what was called the Embargo Act. And Jefferson was trying to keep America out of trouble with France and with, with Britain. In fact, if anything, he prefers France. So he does this Embargo Act. And the Embargo Act is causing a lot of the British warships to uh, arrest and to the word for it was that they would um, you know, I'm trying to remember what the terminology was, but they would confiscate American sailors, impress them is the word, impress American sailors, and uh, that leads to very unpopular resistance. When, when Jefferson does his Embargo Act of 1807, you wind up getting protests in 1808, and the protesters don't like the fact that American sol soldiers and sailors are being arrested by the British and impressed, and they're forced to be in the British Navy. Uh, they also don't like the fact that they, they can't sell their products because of this embargo that Jefferson put in place. So you have a insurrection in 1808, and Jefferson uses the act, the Insurrection Act of 1807, to send in troops. And this was in the very few people would know this. I had to look it up myself. But in the Lake Champlain region of New York and Vermont, western New York, western Vermont, is where you had this insurrection. And these were people protesting and uh, running amok because of the Embargo Act that was Jefferson's unpopular act. So uh, Jefferson sends in troops, and it ended relatively peacefully in 1808. So that's the first time that the act was used by Jefferson. And remember, Washington used the Militia Act in 1794 during the Whiskey Rebellion. And I want to give you some more color on the Whiskey Rebellion. So the Whiskey Rebellion, I mentioned how the president, in order to deploy the troops under these old versions of the law, had to have a determination by a judge, a federal district judge or a Supreme Court judge, giving him the authority to deploy the troops. So I give a quote on the website from James Wilson, who was a Supreme Court justice in 1794. And on August 4th of 1794, James Wilson gives, uh, gives Washington the following letter and tells Washington that, yes, Washington can send in the troops to western Pennsylvania during the Whiskey Rebellion. So I'm going to read it to you, and feel free to go to the website to see it for yourself. So this is from James Wilson, 1794, as follows. Sir, 
which is addressed to President Washington. Sir, from the evidence which has been laid before me, I hereby notify to you that in the countries of Washington and Allegheny in Pennsylvania, laws of the United States are opposed and the execution thereof obstructed by combinations too powerful to be suppressed by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings. And you've heard that before. That's coming from the 1792 Act. So here you have the Chief Justice, or a Justice rather, giving the President the go-ahead because the terminology here is the combinations are too powerful to be suppressed by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings or by the powers vested in the marshal of that district. So based upon that opinion that he gets or that determination from Justice James Wilson, who's also a very important founding father, Washington sends in the troops during the Whiskey Rebellion, 1794. So we've got examples of where this act has been used, Washington, 1794. Now, and of course, these cases... You can honestly say that the states didn't have standing armies that were suffice to take on these roles themselves, or were they one and the same? Um, how come there was, in all your explanations and storytelling, there's no conflict between states and national armies? So I think when we get into the modern law, because I'm going to give you the citations to the modern statute, it becomes a little bit clearer because there's more there's more language. But uh, but you're right. Back then, the militias were much bigger than the military. The military, at the time of St. Clair's defeat, was only two or 3,000 troops. We did not have – we had a little bit of a merchant marine, and we had the cutter service under Hamilton you know, on the ports. We had boats. But the, the full-time army was, was was tiny under Washington, two or 3,000, because we disbanded the, the, the Continental Army. So the state militias were much larger. And when – when Washington marches in the Whiskey Rebellion with the 12,000 troops, the vast majority of them are the militia from Virginia, I think, and from Maryland, and from, from other states. So you're right. And the militias are really under the control of the governors unless the, the president calls them up. Then they fall under the president's command. But if they're not called up, then they're under the governor's command in their respective states. And one of the problems, though, was that the state militias, they weren't putting in money to force them to meet once or twice a year, to do their drills, many of them, especially— Also, they're volunteer most of the time. Right. So back then, and if you look at the—remember I told you, two acts in 1792, the Calling Forth Act, and the other act was the Uniform Militia Act. And the Uniform Militia Act set forth the requirements of how many troops would be in an I don't know the terminology, but in a brigade, and the brigade is organized into units, and you know anyone who's a military professional is going to laugh at my description. But that, that act in 1792 went into detail about we're trying to get the militia trained so that they can be deployed if necessary under the president's command. Another issue was they didn't have guns many Right, so farmers might have guns, but if you're in the you know the cities, um, and we're talking about rifles now, uh, many folks didn't have guns, right? So they had to find a way of giving ammunition and weapons. And what that Militia Act of 1792 said, not to go too off the subject, is that whenever they were called up, they were supposed to bring with them and. It's on the website so people can look at it and read it themselves. Uh, you know, the, like 12, I forgot the terms that they use, but 12, because they didn't call them bullets, uh, but 12 shots, right, with the appropriate amount of uh, gunpowder. So that was in the Militia Act, that if you were in the militia, and that means you're a farmer, you do your regular job during the day, but a couple times a year you have to get together under the command and practice 
problem was they weren't really practicing and weren't really drilling. So the military, the militia was not very organized. But that would improve over time. All right. So we're talking about the instances where the act has been used. And we mentioned the Whiskey Act, 1794. That's Washington. We mentioned Jefferson, 1808, which is in the Lake Champlain region of New York because of the riots and the insurrection, if you will, under the Embargo Act of 1807 time period. So I'm going to now give some more examples of when presidents have used the act. President Jackson. There are things I like about Jackson. There are things I don't like about Jackson. But Jackson, in 18, let's see, 1831, used the militia, used the act to suppress Nat Turner's slave rebellion in Virginia. And Jackson was a brutal guy. He uses it in 1831. I'm going to skip ahead now to Lincoln, 1861. So Lincoln obviously is the president during the Civil War, and he needs to use all of the arsenal at his disposal to win the war. So what he winds up doing in 1861, and, and here this gets into your question about did the governors have to give permission. So Lincoln, you know, is going to be invading the South. Does he need to ask the Southern Confederate governors who've now broken away and they've committed treason? Does he need to get the permission to send in the army and call up militia to go after the South? And the answer is Lincoln says no. I don't need to get permission to do this, right? But he does amend. This is the 37th Congress, 1861 time frame. He amends the Militia Act to give him the ability to act without permission from governors. And I will tell you that Lincoln had to do certain things to preserve the Union. And some of the things he did were a little controversial. He suspended habeas corpus. Today, if anyone tried to suspend habeas corpus, there would there would be a real insurrection. And uh, Lincoln suspended habeas corpus because Washington, D.C. was so close to Virginia, and he had to protect the capital. So he wouldn't. You know, there was a point in time where Lee's army was only I don't know how many miles it was, but it was in striking distance of the White House. So Lee had to t Lincoln had to take certain steps to protect the Union. But the point is that in 1860 time frame, Lincoln and the 37th Congress amends the Militia Act and the Insurrection Act. Uh, he puts in place language that says that uh, and this is 1861. He says that I can I can use the militia without permission of governors. And following the Civil War, after Lincoln dies, and the 14th Amendment is adopted. And there were three amendments that are adopted after the Civil War. There's the 13th Amendment, outlaw slavery, uh, frees the slaves. The 14th Amendment uh, gives rights to equal protection, due process, privileges and immunities. 14th Amendment is civil rights protections. And the 15th Amendment is the right to vote if you're a former slave. So the 14th Amendment is an important civil rights law. And the Militia Act or the Insurrection Act was amended that the president can use militia, can use the armed forces, if you have a situation where civil rights are being violated under the 14th Amendment. So this is now an expansion of the Insurrection Act to cover situations, and this is growing out of during the period after the Civil War is called the, um, i trying to remember the terminology I'm looking for, but the Re Reconstruction period. So during Reconstruction, when the South was destroyed in many ways, their, their, their uh, you know, their whatever infrastructure they had was destroyed, and, uh, you know, the South really took it on the chin because that's where most of the Civil War took place is in the South. So Reconstruction, we're trying to build back up the South. We're also trying to bring democracy for the former slaves. Uh, and for a period of time, we did give them democracy, but that was then taken away. So what is the point? The point is that the, the Civil War, after the war ended, rights were added for the president to protect civil rights of former slaves uh, who were being suppressed by a lot of the Southerners. So that's where another example of how the, the law has expanded, the Insurrection Act has expanded, so the president can use the act if the 14th Amendment is being violated.
So these are Lincoln's amendments and also the, the subsequent amendments expanded the law. And I wanted to point this out also, I thought was interesting, that when Lincoln amended the Militia Act or the Insurrection Act in the 17, let's see, this is the 1861 time frame. Uh, actually, this is 1862. Sorry, there's another act that does 1862 where to his credit, he allows, and I'm going to read to it and read you from it. It's not the terminology we use today, but he says that in paragraph 12 of an act which amended the Insurrection Act, the 37th Congress, that the president, quote, can receive into the service of the United States persons of African descent to be enrolled and organized under such regulations not inconsistent with the Constitution and laws as the president may prescribe. So Lincoln allows the encourages Congress to amend the Insurrection Act to allow former slaves to serve in the military. We could talk about what capacities they allowed them to serve. But that's, I think, to Lincoln's credit, he amends the law, 1862, and their terminology, they didn't refer to them as um, you know, slaves. They didn't refer to them as African-Americans. They referred to them as African descent. Persons of African descent could now, for the first time, be allowed into the militia under Lincoln's Act of 1862. All right, so moving ahead, uh, Lincoln obviously fights the Civil War. Then after Lincoln's president, you have a big controversy with Johnson and the impeachment, and then Grant becomes the president. And I think a lot of people agree Grant was a very well, good president. Well, I mean, wait, when, you, when you talk about the, the, um, Lincoln's use of the insurgency, he did open fire on, a, on striking, on striking uh, workers in New York, didn't he? You know what, that might be an example. I know there were issues in— various locations in Manhattan because there were riots. And I don't know the specifics, and you're right, but that's during a war, right? Right. Right. So I don't know that how much we can extrapolate from that, but I think the Cooper Union area around Union Square, uh, they were drafted because there was, uh, you know, people were being called up and they were being drafted into the military and there was concern that people were able to, and we have talked about this another night, people who were wealthier were able to, I don't know the, the specifics, but yeah, you know, the draft to, to stand in for you when you were, instead of being drafted, you could basically pay to get other people to volunteer to take over your spot. So um, that was allowed during the Civil War and there was, you know, the, the immigrant communities thought this wasn't a war and there, were, there was there was opposition at various points especially when the war wasn't going well so it would not surprise me many that you might be right that yeah that he opened that he opened fire and it, uh, apparently apparently was a bloodbath you might be correct I, I can conceivably imagine that happening in Manhattan uh, because in some places well hell it's uh, happening now <laughs> in Manhattan well, Hopefully the military is not firing on, on peaceful demonstrators. All right, so All right. <laughs> let's, let, let's now go to President Grant, and this is 18, 1871 time frame. So Grant uses the Anti-Insurrection Act, or if you want to call it the Insurrection Act, in 1871, and he sends military troops into South Carolina to suppress the Ku Klux Klan, and this is, again, during Reconstruction. So this is a, for an example of where a president is using the, the militia, Then uh, this is a situation where the Ku Klux Klan is running amok and creating an insurrection, and Grant, to his credit, deploys the, the army. So that's 1870s, and there are some other examples, but I want to skip now to the 1950s. So there's a famous Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education, where the Supreme Court says separate is not equal, and the Supreme Court overturns Plessy versus Ferguson, which is enormously unpo unpopular in the South, because the court is now saying you have to desegregate, and uh, many Southern governors don't want to do it. So what does Eisenhower and Kennedy do? 
And Eisenhower, as everybody knows, was a general during World War II, and don't mess with Eisenhower. So Eisenhower, in 1957, he famously utilizes the, and I, I might joke with you what, branch of the military does he use, and he uses the 101st Airborne Division of the Army to set up a cordon to guard the Little Rock Nine as they walk to their classes at Little Rock Central High School. And Arkansas Governor, Governor Orbis Faubus, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name, and the Arkansas National Guard were trying to prevent desegregation. And Eisenhower says, I'm not going to have it. And Eisenhower sends in the first, 101st Airborne, and he, he it's only a handful of people, only nine, the Little Rock Nine, but he begins the process of desegregating in uh, Little Rock. Yeah, allowing black girls in, in really white schools, correct? That's right. These are all white schools because before you were allowed to have separate schools, black and white schools. And this is the Arkansas National Guard and the governor saying, no, we're not going to listen to the Supreme Court. And Eisenhower says, no, the Supreme Court is the Supreme Court. And he sends in the 101st Airborne. It's a very famous picture of these very brave, heroic high school kids, you know, surrounded by taunting. You know, look at the faces of, uh, of, of those individuals, the hatred and the, um, you know, the I can't describe it. The picture is a thousand words. You've got the, the elite members of the 101st Airborne Division guarding these, you know, how old are you in high school? 14, 15, 16, 17, right? So guarding 15, 16, 17, 18. So these, these nine African-American children, high school kids, they're just trying to get an education, right? And uh, you needed the 101st Airborne Division to guard. This is some of the history of our country, right? So that's 1957. The Anti-Insurrection Act, or called the Insurrection Act, is used for a, in my opinion, in a totally appropriate purpose over the objection, I will admit, of Governor Faubus, who is preventing, and remember here, we're following what the Supreme Court says. The Supreme Court says you must desegregate, and a governor is violating the law if the governor with the Arkansas National Guard is refusing to follow the dictates of the Supreme Court and the president, and Eisenhower's not going to have it. That's 1957, a sad moment but a proud moment in American history. Let's now go to Kennedy, one of my favorite presidents, 1962-1963, and there are things we don't like about Kennedy, right? And I'm sure you're going to mention something happens uh, in that time frame also. Never mind. I'm not going to get redundant on you. I promise. So Kennedy uses the Insurrection Act, deploys federal troops in Mississippi and Alabama to enforce civil rights acts. This is during the period when we're trying to desegregate. 1965, Johnson uses the act uh, because there's a march from Selma to Montgomery, and uh, all the KKK is running amok, and protesters are being attacked. So, let me back up. Peaceful civil rights activists are being attacked. So, therefore, Johnson sends in the military. 1967. Guess which branch of the army he uses? Which uh, which division? In Detroit, there's a riot in Detroit. In the 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne is sent in by Johnson in 1967 because of rioting. And then in Martin Luther King's assassination, 1968, Johnson also reinvokes the act. So you've got multiple examples of presidents using it, but these are extraordinary, hopefully rare circumstances where a president uses the act when there is an insurrection that rises to that level. So let me ask you, when's the most recent time that the Insurrection Act has been used? And this is going to be kind of interesting when I tell you some of the names. It's 1992, so it hasn't been used since 1992. The president was George Herbert Walker Bush, and the riots that were taking place were in Los Angeles after the beating of Rodney King. Yes. And 
George H.W. Bush sends in the military uh, to quell the rioting in Los Angeles. Again, after the Rodney King is, is acquitted, and that's what sets off the rioting. And I, we can draw comparisons between Rodney King back then and this issue of what's perceived to be, and I think it is as a real problem, which is uh, you know, police violence uh, when individual officers are not following their training. So Rodney King gets off, and the military has to be brought in. So who was the attorney general for George Washington, George Herbert Walker Bush in 1992? And you want to take a guess at who the attorney general was in 1992? It was Scro- uh, Scrocroft? No. Not here, this is a coincidence, right? Oh, yeah, William Barr. William Barr. So 1992, under That's George right. Walker Bush, the last time that the Insurrection Act was used in Los Angeles, William Barr was the attorney general, and today he's the attorney general again. Uh, there was one other time that the act was used by George Herbert Walker Bush. This is in, let's see. And you anti-Trumpers will say, yeah, he appointed Barr because he was going to do this all over again. <laughs> You could say that, but I, I realize. Uh, but it's it's a small world. The bar, you know, we've recycled bar again. So here we here's his head cropping up again. But the other time it was used prior to 1992 by George Herbert Walker Bush was in St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. After Hurricane Hugo, there was rioting, and the military was sent in to restore order after the rioting and insurrection in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Now, what about George H.W. Bush's son, George W. Bush, because Katrina happened in 2005. And all this, by the way, is spelled out on Sachets and Stories, so people can go and read it yourself, because I'm skipping around. But uh, G.W. Bush uh, decided not to use the Insurrection Act in 2005 after Hurricane Katrina. And remember, there were problems in, in uh, New Orleans. And Boy, I, were there, but, man. Uh, you know, fleets and fleets and fleets of federal help vehicles just sitting there parked. I mean, ridiculous. So the reason why George W. Bush did not send in the military when it came and did not invoke the act was he was asked not to invoke the act by local leaders and officials, and I don't have the specific details, but Bush did not deploy the act in 2005 after Katrina. Um, So that's some of the history, but I promised I wanted to talk about two more things. I wanted to talk about the the current language, and instead of going paragraph by paragraph, I'm just going to give it to people if everyone wants to go to the website or Google this. It's 10 U.S. Code Section 251. So 10 U.S. Code Section 251 talks about, first, if a governor governor or a state invites in the president, then the president can recall up the militia. So that's 10 U.S.C. 251, which is the modern version as it got reorganized of the Anti-Insurrection Act. Section 251, and I'll just read part of it, whenever there is an insurrection in any state against its government, the president may, upon the request of its legislature or its governor, if the legislature cannot convene, call into federal service, yada, 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 the militia. So that's 251, 10 U.S.C. 251. If he's requested or she has requested, the president can bring in the troops. Section 10 U.S. Code 252 talks about a situation where you don't need the governor to ask you or a state to ask you. And this is 252 is if you have an unlawful obstruction, combination, assemblage, or rebellion, and it's impractical to enforce the law by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings. And we talked about that already. So and this language dates back to 1792. So Section 10 U.S. Code 252, the president can, if there is an unlawful obstruction, assemblage, rebellion, etc., can send in the military without request or request of permission from a governor. That's 10 U.S.C. 252. 10 U.S.C. 253 is the civil rights language that was added after Lincoln that says that if 
uh, you know, the protesters, and it's not even the protesters, if you have the KKK as an example, is refusing to follow, and it's referred to as an insurrection, domestic violence, or unlawful combination or conspiracy, and you're denying privileges, immunities, you're depriving rights and protections under the Constitution, then you could bring in the military to protect civil rights. So that's Section 253. And that was after the Civil War. And then the last section I'm going to mention real quick is 10 U.S.C. 254, which is the proclamation. And we talked about this also, that the president has to, if you're going to use these acts, you have to make a formal proclamation. I'll read it to you real quick. Whenever the president considers it necessary to use the militia or the armed forces under this chapter, and that's 10 U.S. Code, he shall, by proclamation, immediately upon order the insurgents to disperse and retire peaceably to their abodes within a limited time. So, again, the president has to. It says the president, I think it has a shell in there yet, yeah, that he shall, by proclamation, order the insurgents to disperse, and uh, they have a limited time to do that. So that's really, that's the Insurrection Act today in its modern form. But I, I promise you, we have to talk about the Posse Comitatus Act. And real quick, the Posse Comitatus Act is 18 U.S. Code, Section 1385. And the Posse Comitatus Act is really simple because it's only, really, it looks like it's one sentence. It's a long sentence, but it's a real simple sentence. And it says, I won't read it, but basically that it is a crime of imprisonment not more than two years, so it's a felony, if you use the military without express authorization by the Constitution or by Congress, if you willfully use the military or armed forces or air force as a posse comitatus is what it says. So what this law does from, from the 1780s, I'm sorry, the 1880 time period uh, after Reconstruction, after President Hayes was the president, uh, if someone misuses the military, that's a, a felony which is punishable by no more than two years if you misuse the military as a posse comitatus. And the issue with the Posse Comitatus Act is that what is an express, express, explicit or an express authorization? And the quick answer is that if the, the Militia Act and the Insurrection Act is an exception to the Posse Comitatus Act. So if the president is acting lawfully under the Insurrection Act, he doesn't have to worry about the Posse Comitatus Act. So the Posse Comitatus Act would be a circumstance where the president is violating the Militia Act or the Insurrection Act. Then he would run afoul of the Posse Comitatus Act. But real quick, Posse Comitatus is an exception to the Insurrection Act. So what else can I tell you before we wrap up? That uh, there's never been a prosecution under the 1877 Posse Comitatus Act. And it was uh, President Hayes uh, is when it was adopted, and this was in the 1877 time frame. There was a great railroad strike where troops were used, and the, the southern governors and other states got together and said, no, we don't want the presidents using the military too loosely. So that's why they adopted the Posse Comitatus Act. And with that, we're up against the hour. So what have we done, Manny? We've summarized how the law started in 1792. It's derived from Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution. From 1792, it was amended in 1795. Okay, but well why don't we just summarize it as this? After after we heard the history, could Trump <laughs> bring in the federal troops into D.C. only? How about that? That'd be a good closing statement. And then we'll just end it with that on the Statues and Story Show until next week. There you go. So what's your answer? Everybody, and everybody have a good night. <laughs> no, no. You tell me, what's your answer? Does your president get to fill up downtown D.C., not being a state, without a militia, based on what you've told us so far for the last hour, was it in his right 
for stability and security of the people of Washington, D.C., the federal troops. So, yes. Man, you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> All right, folks. Stay free, my friends. Take care. That was the statues and stories over. There's been insurrections all the time. Uh, stay tuned for the next one. Take care. That's never